Hello there and welcome. As mentioned a few weeks ago in the 1978 episode, one of the greatest bands ever, Dire Straits, released their self-titled debut album and single, Sultans of Swing, in 1978. And I posted a photo of Mark Knopfler on an Instagram story and some random called John messaged me saying, how good is Dire Straits? So the internet has spoken with an incorrectly worded sentence and no question mark. So in this episode, I'll attempt to answer John's question. I think it was a question. So for episode four of the series, I will do a rabbit hole dig on Dire Straits, a band that I think sound like no other. They're totally unique song and vocal style, and you can pick a Mark Knopfler guitar lick from a mile away. So I will start with a bit of the prehistory of the main man, Mark Knopfler. He was actually born in Glasgow, Scotland in 1949, as was his brother and original Dire Straits member, David Knopfler, before moving to Newcastle, England in 1956. At the age of 15, he got his first guitar. Here's Mark talking to Dire Straits bass player, John Ilsley, about his first guitar. So what have we got in the case? Well, this is my first guitar. This is the one my poor old dad when I was 15. It's as close as he could get to a, to a real Fender Stratocaster. And yeah. these are called a Hofner uh, Super Solid. What were they made of? I mean, this is this wood, or is it sort of plywood? Oh, it's still, yeah, it's no, still that's, wood. That's it? wood, yeah. And they okay. still copied that. Oh, yeah, that little stratty thing there. Yeah, and with the very distinctive tremolo arm that sort of contoured for the hand. I absolutely love this thing, even though, of course, it, you know, it wasn't the real object of desire. Well, there's one over here we can compare it with. Let's just have a look at this. Yeah, there's. Here we are. There's the real... There's the latest... The real McCoy. They're almost identical. Look at that. Well, I think to the untrained eye, John, you know. <laughs> you ended up with that one instead. Yeah, uh, there was an old guy in the shop there. He used to... He's, 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 his head used to go around like his chin was always moving. And I still remember him saying, uh, stick at it, you know, as I walked out of the shop. Well, you uh, said stick at it. Well, he, he did. He told me to stick at uh, it. Not, you know. not to keep doing that, but... <laughs> You'll never make it. <laughs> Mark formed several bands in the 60s and at age 16 made a local TV appearance with a classmate, Sue Herkham, playing a song called Chilly Wind. And I actually found a few seconds of the song. In 1968, he formed a duo with Steve Williams called the Duolian String Pickers. And here's a bit of a recording they made. Mark Knopfler recorded an original song called Summer's Gonna Come My Way with Steve Phillips on guitar, Paul Grainer on drums and Dave Johnson on the electronical bass guitar. It hardly sounds like Mark's vocal at all. You can check it out here.
Then Mark Knopfler briefly had a band called Silver Hills, and in 1973, he briefly joined a band called Brewers Droop that we talked about and played somewhere in a previous episode, but I can't remember. It may have been the name changes, but here's a bit of their sound. Just like a gambler With losing He's going crazy Like one man band All he has Is on a shot in the dark Gonna spend the night In a downtown park And wake with no love In his heart Mark Knopfler does mention Brewer's Droop a few years later in his song Industrial Disease, also known as a Foster's Flop. I'm not surprised to see you here. You've got smokers caught from smoking, Brewer's Droop from drinking beer. I don't know how you came to get... It was actually during this time that Mark Knopfler found his voice on guitar after a night at a friend's place where the only guitar was an acoustic guitar with a badly warped neck, which was impossible to play unless he finger-picked it. And that was a technique he started to heavily develop and became his signature. When I started, you know, I, I was desperate for a guitar. It had to be red, it had to be um, electric. And, and then I didn't have the nerve to... Uh, my dad couldn't afford one of these. So he bought me a, a, a 50 quid sort of... German imitation, which I loved. I, I probably slept with it on the very first night. I tried to get into bed with it. And then I didn't have the nerve to ask him for uh, an amplifier, uh, so I couldn't. <laughs> so I plugged it into the radio uh, and blew that up pretty short order. In short order. And uh, then I borrowed a friend's acoustic guitars and I ended up playing in folk places because Powell's big sister wanted to sing in folk clubs and different things. I got exposed to a lot of that and and then I was eventually found out how to pick the guitar and and, uh, and, and finger pick it, which is instead of using a, a piece of plastic. So I was playing both ways all the time. I just wanted to be in a rock band. Uh, it was good that I, I went that way. When I was getting into a lot of country blues and doing my studies with all of that stuff, if you like, uh, you know, I, I had to get hold of one of these. And, uh, it, you know, that was the top of the slippery slope back then and when it, back in the early 70s when I got my first national. It's called a national. It's very, it's very vulgar. It has lovers and palm trees, lovers in a canoe. And uh, I just think they're magnetic objects. And 
I played a lot of bottleneck and steel on them and learned how to play them a little bit, but then um, the guitar itself just started to get on records that I was making. By the mid-70s, he was a lecturer at Lawton College in Essex and playing in a band called the Cafe Racers. And by April 77, Mark was sharing a flat with his brother David and future Dire Straits bass player, John Ilsley. The Nofflers and Ilsley found drummer Pick Withers and by 1977, they were recording their first demos under the name Dire Straits. And here's John Ilsley talking about that time. Uh, well, I was uh, a student in London in 1975, I think it was, when I needed a, a um, somebody to share the rent on, on, on my council flat. You know, uh, 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 I don't know what you call them in America, but anyway, the rent was about £9.50 a week, which is probably then was about $16, and I couldn't afford it. And so I needed a flatmate, and David Knopfler turned up. He was a friend of a friend of mine. And um, we got on very well, so he moved in, and, and consequently, I met um, I met his brother Mark a, a, a few weeks later, and we shared the same interests in music, same kinds of music, and um, ended up playing together in the flat, working on various things from time to time. And he was he was a, he was actually a lecturer at a, at a college in in in. Um, the east of England. So he used to come down at the weekends. And I mean, just gradually we became very good friends. And um, uh, I don't know, we just fell into the idea of a band. And um, David played the guitar as well, of course, as you know. And uh, we needed a, a drummer. And Mark had met this chap, Pick Withers, from uh, some previous uh, band that he'd been in. And Pitt came down, liked what he heard, and we suddenly had ourselves a band, uh, which was very exciting. And, I, and I, I'd been in a lot of bands before, and so had Mark, but I think that there was something about this which made it um, special for me and for him, and I think for the rest of us, that uh, we were in a, in a unique sort of... A unique sort of outfit, I think, and a unique sound. It's difficult to explain because, you know, when you play with different musicians, you create a different kind of sound. And the sound of Dire Straits really started pretty much straight away um, with the combination of, all, of us all playing together. And, of course, Mark was writing uh, songs pretty much from the moment that I met him. And um, so we had ourselves a bunch of good um, songs to to play with and off we went. A musician and friend of the band, Brinsley Schwartz, helped with the band's name after commenting on their financial situation, which was in dire straits, and hence the name was taken and the band was born. So on July 27, 1977, they recorded five songs, Wild West End, Sultans of Swing, Down to the Waterline and Water of Love, all of which made it to their debut album, and a David Knopfler penned song, Sacred Loving which didn't make it. I mean, is it true that the, the thing we keep reading about that you guys started with initially back in 77 with you raised 250 quid or $250, yeah. which was enough to get you a, a recording of, uh, of Sultans of Swing? Was that a true story? Oh, yeah. It, uh, we did. We demoed. It went into a little studio in North London and uh, and the, guy, the engineer of that, uh, of that session is the guy who does our lights now. And... Uh, 
we put five songs down and uh, and a fellow called Charlie Gillett started to play it on local radio, b local BBC radio, Radio London. He had a program called Honky Tonk and, and the, all these people started writing in and we started doing, we were doing clubs and, uh, and joints around London at that time, but there was a lot of interest from the demo tape being played on the radio and a lot of people actually still prefer that little demo tape to what we eventually got on the record. Do you still have the demo? Is the original still there somewhere? I haven't heard for ages. I, it will, will be somewhere. I think John's got probably got it somewhere. It's pretty cool to hear the almost ready to go Sultans of Swing, including the famous guitar solo. Sultans of Swing was actually in a little pub, uh, and uh, and there's a, a, a dusty little jazz Dixieland jazz band playing down in you know Deptford or Greenwich, and and uh, almost nobody in, but some young lads you know were in, over in the end of the pub playing pool yeah. in their baggies and their platform soles, yeah. you know, oh, and gosh. all of that. I was just there to have a couple of pints. Yeah. At the end of the night, the trumpet player or whoever yeah. does the announcement says. Well, um, right, that's it, it's time to go. He says, uh, he says uh, we are the Sultans of Swing. <laughs> and you couldn't be less a Sultan of anything, you know, if you were in that band on that night in that pub. <laughs> Later in 1977, they recorded three more songs, this time for the BBC, all of which made it onto the first album. Southbound again, In the Gallery, and Switchblade Knife. Then another demo session was set up on the 9th of November 77, where they recorded Setting Me Up, which made it onto the debut album, plus two other songs, Eastbound Train and Real Girl. 
Here's a bit of the F-bombing Real Girl, which is actually a pretty cool song. I don't want no suckers. So the demo for Sultans of Swing was given to a radio DJ, Charlie Gillett, who had a BBC radio show called Honky Tonk, and Charlie started playing the song, and two months later, Dire Straits signed with Vertigo Records. The band entered Basing Street Studio on February 13, 1978, and by the 5th of March 1978, had recorded their debut self-titled album, and it was released on the 7th of October 1978. The album went to number two in the US and New Zealand and number five in the UK. The album had two singles, Sultans of Swing, which went to number four in the US, number eight in the UK, number six in Australia and number four in Canada. And Water of Love was released as a single in Germany and Australia. nominated for two Grammys in 1980 for Sultans of Swing, Best New Artist, which ended up going to Ricky Lee Jones, and Best Rock Vocal Performance that ended up going to the Eagles for Heartache Tonight. So in late 1978, the band toured the UK opening for Talking Heads, and 1979, they embarked on their first US tour, 51 sold-out gigs in 38 days. Bob Dylan saw the band play in LA and asked Mark Knopfler and, and Pick Withers to play on his next album, 1979's Slow Train Coming, which I think was Bob Dylan's first religious album when he was in his religious phase. Dire Straits returned to the studio in late 1978 in the Bahamas to record their second album, Communique, which was then released on the 15th of June 1979. It went to number one in New Zealand, number 11 in the US and number five in the UK. Communique had the single Lady Writer and the rest of 1979 had the band touring Europe and the US. Here's a beat group song now. Lady Writer. Lady Writer. 
again, this time the power station in New York City in June 1980 to record their third record, Making Movies. And during this time, David Knopfler left the band after heated arguments with his brother. David's guitars on the records were almost completed, but after he left, Mark re-recorded them along with session guitarist Sid McGuinness. And here's David talking about that time. Another time, another did your brother know you were going to leave? I mean, was it like the... Yes and no, no, not really. I think it was just, you know, we were we were all burnt out. Too many gigs, too much work, too much stress, not enough downtime. And things were just, you know, going from bad to worse. And I just I decided I had enough. So, you know, I booked a flight and got came back to England. And I didn't regret it for a second and haven't since. When you left the band, uh, what was in your thought? Okay, you've left. Were you thinking, well, you've obviously had songs because you were writing songs for Dire Straits before. What was going through your mind? I'd like to get a good night's sleep. Um, (laughs) I'd like to see my cats. I'd like to be in my little little flat making beans on toast at three in the morning if I want to without having to call room service. Uh, I just wanted to be... um, I needed some downtime. And here's the producer of their debut album and Steve Winwood's brother, Muff Winwood, and Dire Straits manager, Ed Bicknell, talking about tensions at the time. Very early on, it was pretty clear to me that David would generally be overruled, usually by the words, shut up. So he would say something and Mark would kind of go, shut up, just shut up. I tried to sign them for Ireland, but we got beaten by phonogram, but they asked me if I would produce their first album. It was clear to me that Mark's facility for playing the guitar was unusual and very good, and that that's what was going to give us our extra turbocharge. Mark was very dominant in Dire Straits, However, I'd noticed that his brother also wrote some very good songs. And why not cut eight songs of Mark's and a couple of songs of Dave's? And I suddenly found a great deal of resistance to this from Mark. Essentially, Dire Straits was a vehicle for Mark Knopfler's songs. That's what the band was. And there wasn't room for anybody else's stuff. I thought it was a democracy, but I was probably deluded. It wasn't really a democracy. It was Mark's band. The album Making Movies was released on the 17th of October 1980 and made it to number 19 in the US and number four in the UK, but it stayed in the UK charts for 256 weeks. The album had three singles, Skate Away, number 37 in the UK and number 58 in the US, 
and one of my top 10 favourite songs ever, Romeo and Juliet. I love struck Romeo, sing the streets of serenade, laying everybody low with a love song that he made. Find the streetlight, steps out of the shade, says something like, you and me, babe, how about it? Juliet says, hey, it's Romeo, he nearly gave me a heart attack. He's underneath the window, she's singing, I'm a boyfriend's back You shouldn't come around here Singing up to people like that Anyway, what you gonna do about it? Juliet The dice was loaded from the start And I bet And you exploded into my heart And I forget, I forget The movie song and of course, every time I research a song that I love, I always find the universe yin and yangs me with a perfectly in tune but tone deaf, missing the point, us, 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 me, me, me arranged, life sucking choir version. There's a man there, you know, he's the host of the show, and you'll find that. Fucking hates choirs. I doubt it. You and me, babe. How about it? And here's bass player John Ilsley talking to Mark about how his national resonated guitar and open tuning helped with Romeo and Juliet. And the tuning that they use, just for guitar nerds, is an open G tuning, which is from thick to thin strings. D, G, D, G, B, D. Then slap a capo on the third fret and Bob's your auntie's living lover. The first national that I got was I saw it in exchange in March and it was in Wales. I didn't have any money and I didn't have a car. So I borrowed the car, I borrowed the money and I drove to Wales in the pouring rain and got this guitar from an old orchestral musician. And later on I got the chance to buy this from Steve because Steve was ascending the social scale with his uh, nationals and he'd got a top of the line thing called a national Don. Yeah. So he sold me this one and uh, this has been my pal ever yeah, since. So then you guys started playing together as the Duolian string pickers. So what, what kind of music were you playing then? I was really deep into the Chicago blues mm. at that point, but Steve was into the 20s and 30s music. Mm. And so Steve's house became a kind of university of the blues for me because he had a tremendous record collection, really obscure stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yes. We'd play things like um, Can't Be Satisfied. Yeah. It would be, it would be, be, be something like... Uh,
and you never really forget too much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the love affair with the National then stimulated you to start writing things on it, and one of the most poignant ones, of course, is the Romeo and Juliet lick, which mm. came out of, if I remember rightly, a tuning thing. Yeah. A lot of the songs that we learned on these, the guitar would be tuned not the normal way, but to an open chord. So we've mm. just tuned out. Because you have to learn new chords to try and play tunes around with the open tuning, that then becomes your four chord. And this shape here is your five chord. And of course, as you move on, then you can start to take liberties with that. You know, work out your own little bits of improvisation, make it your own a little bit. Okay. And then the leg came. Mark Knopfler talking to Brian Johnson from ACDC about the Spanish city in Whiteley Bay, where he sees the lyrics for Tunnel of Love for the first time as they are paved into the promenade. Beautiful spot, is it not? It brings back some memories. I tell you what, that just that scene, that Brian brings it all back. It hasn't changed actually. That no, that that view, and I can still remember staggering over all those stones in order to try and get onto the beach. And even that's the same. Oh, there's the Rex Hotel. Yeah, yeah, the Rex Hotel. You know, everybody wanted to play a gig there. On that's uh, right. Was it Friday or Saturday? I, oh, I can't remember. I mean, I can't remember. I remember going to see the Lindisfarne there. You know, yeah, yeah, that a long that, time was, ago. Yeah. This is bringing memories back. Oh yeah. I mean, you must have played there lots of times. We did. Right? We did. We played in pre-Geordie days. Yeah. And behind were the old Spanish city where well, we used to come. Why did you want to come here? I think this would be essentially about the most powerful single spot yeah. that I would sort of brings it all together. The music and my early childhood. Yes. You know. This is where we used to come and color codes a lot which is just over there as well yeah. it's a little little bay next door and the spanish city which is the fairground of course and there's something magical about it it was the only place we could hear music loud it was like a drug for me then when i was a kid you couldn't get me away from that i think my parents must have been terrified that i was going to just run away with the fairground you know yeah. i mean it was it was, it was romantic and, yeah, it was and, and and of course to, to be working on the waltzes and impressing oh, the that girls was the that girls. was the gig wasn't yeah. it springsteen was writing about coney island and yes and, and rockaway beat and all of that and i thought well one of the things that i wanted to do, do you, you know when you fall in love with rock and roll it's all about american geography isn't it yes it's all about route 60 six and you know we, we all know the words to all of them and so what i wanted to do or to try to do then was to try and put my little corner of the world into song and, and but here is the uh, this is the ultimate in recognition young mark lead on a great one you know the lyrics from tunnel of love oh good grief i mean come on oh, you can't get that. better than that look at the you are right on the side well in fact Wow. I mean, I had no idea. No. And girl, it looks so pretty to me. Just like it always did. Like, like the Spanish city to me. When we were kids. Pam, <laughs> pam. Very good. That's beautiful. 
the carousel waltz that I started that song with, that was playing on the radio all the time. Yes. And I, I used to be, I remember playing on the beach and trying to say, imitate the sound of the organ. And so I had, just had to have it in the song to start the song off, to yeah. be there. That always brings me there. Tunnel of Love was the last single from Making Movies with some great signature guitar playing and a great breakdown. Check it out. Check it out.
Mark talking again about local identity in his songwriting and where the inspiration for some of his songs may have come from. I wanted to put myself into my own world and put that in and see if I could, if, I, if that could, could be part of the expression. And so I started that really early on and I've never stopped doing it. Somewhere where the delta meets the tyne, yeah, there's still that element of that in there because being exposed to um, all the music, the folk music of Tyneside when I was a kid and even actually moving to Tyneside from Scotland when I was about seven, I think that there would be an element of the uh, fusion going on there as well. That there's a lot of things about Scotland and uh, Geordieland that are very, very similar. A lot of the people are moved down there to work anyway in the shipyards and so on and so forth. So there's uh, a lot of connections there, a lot of fellow feeling as well, I think. And um, uh, so, yeah, so that's part of it. I guess that, <clears throat> you know, that that, that is part of 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 the geography. And I, but I don't think that that ever leaves because I had a love affair with London since I was 14 or something, or 15, I think it's the first time that I visited. And, and, and so that's never gone away either, that romance that I have with, with, with that. Um, and I romance also well with the beauty of the, Brit uh, the English countryside, you know, the, and, and Scotland as well, the coast and Geordieland, Northumberland, all of that's very dear to me. Some songs are much easier to, to trace to, you know, and, 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 and I will tell you if that's, if it's easy, it's easy. But sometimes it's much more complex and, and you don't really know what the thing is about or it's just about trying to feel something. Um, so it is an odd business trying to, trying to, and as soon as you start trying to unpick something like that, it loses something too, because I want the songs to be able to work for you. And, and I don't want that to spoil that by saying, no, it's not about that, it's about this. Okay, it can, it's great if you can <clears throat> find something of yourself in there to, to, to inhabit. So more touring in between the release of Making Movies and their next album, Love Over Gold, and the touring brought them to Australia for the first time in 1981. And I forgot to mention, by late 1980, Hal Linders was in the band on guitar and Alan Clark had joined the band on keys. The band recorded and released their fourth album, Love Over Gold, in 1982. Mark Knopfler from Dire Straits. Well, uh, there is an avalanche of gold and platinum coming over you these days. Uh, the title of your album is uh, Love... Is it painful? Uh, Why? No, 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 no I'm, I, I, just a joke. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought so. Anyway, uh, the title of the album is uh, Love Over Gold. Does it mean that you expected uh, something like this, or is there another meaning? Uh, Love Over Gold means what it says, really. Uh, yeah, uh, um, I think that's a, it's a simple statement. Yes, it's very simple. That's why I'm asking you uh, something uh, about it. Maybe you can make it more clear for us, but because I thought, well, maybe there is a meaning uh, in love over gold and the results at the moment. Oh, well, you mean gold records, you mean? Exactly. Uh, well, uh, gold records uh, go up in the office um, uh, a lot in London, uh, and uh, there's an attic in the office that's um, like a, you know, a loft, in it, and it's full of them. And this one will... 
be at that one uh, together. Well, in fact, the ones that the ones in Holland are very nice. You know, they always uh, look nice uh, things, and um, uh, I'm sure that uh, Ed will be very happy to uh, to uh, as our manager, and he'll be very happy to put uh, these new ones up on his wall. Yeah, you know? well, we will be hearing that from him later, perhaps. Very interesting. Another question uh, about uh, private investigations. The song. Could you uh, tell me what inspired you to write the song? I mean, the contents. Uh, well, it's uh, it's. Uh, it's really a song uh, partly about uh, writing songs and uh, it just uses a, a kind of a, a, a genre if you yeah. like it just uh, it just uses a certain uh, set of images but maybe to do with uh, inspired by the Chandler uh, thing you know but uh, and it's, it was just a melody that really comes from playing acoustic guitar. You know, when you come off the tour, you don't wake up in the morning and start playing electric guitar, you know, because you wake everybody up. So I play acoustic guitar in the morning. And, uh, uh, and the story? That, uh, the story, well, it's not, it's not really a story. It's really the words are about uh, <coughs> the, the process of uh, finding out more about music uh, and writing songs, you know, when you're playing acoustic guitar. Uh, you, you, coming off tour, I've been trying to learn more about music. So uh, when you learn a new chord, you know, when you write songs, you use it. Yeah. And, and that's really what's happening. I think you just learn more. And the end, the end bit is just from really playing on stage, uh, playing the end of another song, which was on another, another album. And it had a simple ending, and I just started writing music for it. So it's quite simple, really. Yes, and a quite big success as well. Yeah. Well, anyway, you don't want to talk about that, that's true. Uh, well, maybe last question. Uh, could you describe yourself? We want to know more about you. What kind of person are you? Have you some, ma in a few lines, uh, um, well, let's say some major char characteristics about you, or should I ask them to your uh, company? No, I think, um, I, think uh, I like the same things that uh, most men like, you know? Well, that's about it. You're healthy. Yeah. Welcome to the club. We are both swingers, you see. <laughs> you have a toy body. Yes. I see that from your toy pants. Yes, you are toy like a tiger. Would you like a smoke and a pancake?
excuse for it And when I find the reason which was the single in this country from Love Over Gold, was one which immediately was distinctive when it came on the radio. The, the long, moody introduction, the length of the piece. It was uh, one that, that seemed to have risk written all over it. <laughs> Did you consider it one? Yeah, but, I mean, we can say what we want to put out, so... And the great thing about our record company is that... that, that uh, when you say, all right, that's just, heck with it, this'll be a single, right? And then they go, oh, all right then, which is great. <laughs> Love Over Gold clocks in at just over 41 minutes, but has just five tracks on it, with Telegraph Road taking up 14 of those minutes. Love Over Gold went to number one in Australia, New Zealand and the UK, and number 19 in the US, and had two singles, the edited down to six minute private investigations, number two in the UK, and the edited down to four minutes industrial disease. One song that was written by Mark Knopfler at this time that didn't appear on the Love Over Gold album was this pop rock nugget, as Mark Knopfler thought the lyrics were, inappropriate for a male to sing. So you have to try and get in, sometimes you have to try and get into the minds of other people, private dancer. There's another one where um, I tried to, I mean, I, I became a woman, you know. You've well, tried it all. I have. I've been there. <laughs> no, I mean, it's so strange, really. Um, I mean, I never actually recorded it. I mean, Tina Turner recorded it, but um, we recorded the backing track, and on the demo, I sang it for her, you know, and we've, we've sung it, the band sung it a few times. We're thinking of actually playing it on tour, <laughs> but it's just, you know, when it goes, and the men are all the same, you know, I just can't sing it straight. I've got to go, the men are all the same. The men come in these places And the men are all the same You don't look at their faces 
Here's Dire Straits keyboard player Alan Clark talking about the song. The song that was written by Mark Knopfler, but what that Tina Turner had a huge worldwide hit with. Uh, we actually recorded Private Dancer, I mean Dire Straits recorded Private Dancer during the Love Over Gold recording sessions with Mark singing it, which is kind of like a bit strange because well, we, we listened back and it was really good, except Mark needed to be a woman, really, to, to, to carry it off, so... Um, I don't know if he was ever thinking of including it in, in Love, of Gold, Love Over Gold, but we, we recorded it anyway. And then it, it was given to Tina Turner, and um, so I recorded it with Tina. In fact, I met Tina as I was sitting at the piano, about to record it with Tina, and half an hour or an hour later, the song was recorded, and that was, that was me done. And then um, Tina was about to go on a tour with uh, supporting Lionel Richie in the States to promote her forthcoming record, which ended up being called Private Dancer. Uh, so having, I was on a break from Dire Straits, so I thought, yeah, I'll do that. Because I've been a big fan of Tina ever since the first time I heard River Deep Mountain High. I think I, was I 10 or 11 years old when it came out? I just thought it was the most extraordinary record. It, it was kind of like from Mars or some outer, from outer space. I just thought it was an amazing sounding record. So when Tina asked me, I said, yeah, I'll do that. So I ended up touring with Tina, doing a six week tour or so of, um, of the States with uh, supporting Lionel Richie. He, and he was amazing, his band was amazing. It was great fun with Tina, and during that tour, the album went to number one in the States and various places around the world. It was a massive hit, which was uh, a great time to be with Tina. And I remember we got to Memphis, and we were staying at the Peabody Hotel in Memphis, which is like an old colonial sort of hotel. And um, Tina told me that when she was a kid, she wasn't allowed, because she lived nearby in Nutbush, I think which is a suburb or something of Memphis, and uh, she wasn't allowed in there because she was black. So she said to me, okay, when we go in, we're gonna go in the front door, we're gonna, and we're gonna sit in the lobby, and, and she's gonna order a bottle of Cristal Champagne, and that's what we did. And we sat there basking in the glory of, of the end of not be, her not being allowed in there because she was black. Fantastic. Sometime in November 1982, Pick Withers left the band and was replaced by Terry Williams. Oh, I left for a lot of reasons. Um, it was getting louder all the time, and I just felt that I wanted to do something else, really, a lot of the time. I wanted to do something more. I didn't want to just be on this treadmill of playing, doing a tour to promote an album, to have a holiday to rehearse, to learn Mark's new songs, to record them, to have a tour, to promote them. 
around and around again. 1982 saw the band on a UK tour and 1983 had them touring in Europe and another Australian and New Zealand run. In January 1983, Dire Straits released an EP called Extended Dance Play that included this song that was a big hit in Australia and New Zealand. Dire Straits won the Best British Group at the 1983 Brit Awards and 1984 saw no gigs or albums from the band, but they did release a live album, Alchemy, 10 songs, 88 minutes, and the band's album cover was painted by Australian artist Brett Whiteley. In October 1984, the band entered Air Studios in Montserrat, West Indies, to record their fifth album, The Massive Brothers in Arms which was released on the 13th of May, 1985. And here's some quick stats on the record. 30 million album sales, 14 weeks at number one in the UK and 271 weeks on the UK chart, nine weeks at number one in the US, 34 weeks at number one in Australia, number 351 on Rolling Stone's greatest 500 records of all time, numerous awards, including a Grammy for Best Engineering and a Brit Award for Best Album of the Year, and another Grammy in 2006 for Best Surround Album for the 20th year re-release. During the recording, drummer Terry Williams was deemed unsuitable for the desired sound and drummer Omar Hakim replaced his drum parts. And this is the only drumming of Terry's left on the album. Mark Knopfler talking to Brian Johnson again about the song and how Sting made it on there. MTV was just coming out. It was just singing. There you came out with this song that, with a, a riff that was so hypnotic and catchy. And I mean, it had everything. Uh, you got Sting singing at the start of it. You know, I want my MTV. It had everything you should ever need. Yeah. Tell you what we happened, Brian. We were actually making the record in Montserrat. And I said to the band, actually, I said, we're making money for nothing. Uh, I said, I wish Sting was here because I'd lifted a line from Don't Stand So Close To Me. Yeah. I want my MTV. Don't stand so, so close, close to me. Whatever it was, you know. I just happened to remark. I said, oh, I wish Sting was here to sing this line. And he said, well, he's here on holiday. <laughs> I said, you're kidding me. <laughs> no. And he, yeah, and he came straight up the studio and and he sang great he did the whole thing great it was just wonderful you picked up on the fact that you know working jaws just like my father who used to wonder how the heck you can make any money playing yeah. this music and yeah. you, you know like you know that's the way you do it that's the way you, you know, do it you only get it a little blister on his little finger yeah <laughs> yeah I mean, I was I was actually in a in an appliance store in New York, and and I, there was this big check shirted, you know, bruiser. Yeah. <laughs> and he's in there, he's delivering some stuff on a little trolley with, you know, and uh, all the TVs in the back of the store were all tuned to MTV. Yeah. And he's standing there, you know, 
with his, you know, and he's holding forth about, um, in very colourful terms, about yeah. all the <laughs> he couldn't put it. people, <laughs> as I'm sure your dad did. Yes, sir. Uh, actually, I started spying on him between some microwaves. You know, like just I didn't want him to see me and put him off. But all those lines, like that, ain't working. Uh, That's the way you do it. Them guys ain't dumb. He said, maybe get a blister on your little finger. <laughs> I, you know, he actually said that, and I thought, how oh, brilliant. He says, what's that? He goes, Hawaiian noises. <laughs> He actually said that, right. and so it was so classic that I, I went and asked for a bit of paper and a pen, and I sat down in the kitchen display area, <laughs> started on the street, and I started yeah. writing the song right there and then. Technology was expensive to buy and there were very few titles available. But Dire Straits decided to record their fifth album digitally to target the CD market. Gennaro Castaldo is the communications director for the British phonographic industry. Record companies were looking for that first big title to sort of get people to switch from sort of cassette and vinyl to this shiny, exciting new format that was the future. And I think this was the album that helped to achieve that transition. People had more money in their pocket. And in fact, we had the yuppie generation uh, so associated with sort of uh, Thatcherism, um, looking for these kind of aspirational products to sort of buy into and um, demonstrate their, their growing wealth. All these things uh, seemingly coming together and this was the catalyst for it. It became the poster, a boy or album for what was to come. But it wasn't just the crisp sound reproduction that made the album a success. 
It was the music. And there's a signature sound on one of the riffs in particular that captured the public's imagination. The track was Money for Nothing. Part of its energy comes from the unique way it sounds. To my ear, it's got a slightly raw edge, as if it's been recorded in a small space. Dire Straits keyboard player is Guy Fletcher. At his recording studio, we're going to attempt to replicate that classic sound just for the one show. Neil Dorfman was the sound engineer for Dire Straits. Neil, have you got any theories as to why you got that really special sound? Even a monkey gets lucky sometimes. That's my theory. <laughs> the truth is, the night before the recording session, Neil had spent hours setting the microphones in place, but overnight, one of them loosened from its stand. To my horror, the microphone was basically pointing at the floor. And we heard it and said, don't touch it, don't touch it, leave it. It unexpectedly produced a distinctive hollow, boxy sound the band loved. So trying to reproduce that sound is virtually impossible, is it? I tried to warn you. <laughs> <laughs> but along with this microphone malfunction, the song's distinctiveness came from the way the guitar was played. John Ilsley is the bass player. Everybody's interpretation of that sound is different. You know, every guitarist knows the lick, but they can't really get that no. absolutely the way it is. Brothers in Arms was the first CD release to sell more than one million copies, and it had five singles. two tracks off the album and already I'm sure they'll be struck by the variation just in those two records but I mean all the way through the album there's so many variations so many different types of song I mean was it almost like a, a showreel if you like of the different types of, of thinking and songs you can write now no not at all there's nothing was done for demonstration purposes and there's, there's nothing like that at all about it it's just that's the way they came out that's what I was writing and uh, I think there is a, a fair amount of a fair variety in there, but that's just the way that they come out, and you have to stay reasonably true to uh, what you've written. You can't start welding them all into one sort of style. Um, there's no real law about songs to me, and sometimes 
Sometimes things come easy, and uh, I think you'd be just lying if you said it was all difficult because it's really not. I mean, it's the same same's true for writing. I mean, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, a lot of the writing is reasonably easy, and uh, you'd be kidding if you said it was it was tortuously difficult all the time. It's really not, but it it can get it can get difficult. Uh, um, in this case, it can get difficult afterwards. It can get difficult trying to make it as to do the very best version that you can. And yet, still, you see, it's it's a fairly simple sound. You seem to go for. I mean, probably deceptively simple. It's probably very difficult to make it sound that simple. And you don't clutter a track out with lots of different things going on all the time, do you? You keep it fairly basic. No, but we probably have. It probably has been cluttered. In other words, you try lots and lots of parts that that don't that don't work. And I mean, you might think they work. I mean, I think they work after Tom go get very excited. Oh, I love that! I love that. And Neil, you know, who's the co-producer and the engineer, he's sitting there going, "I don't know, I don't know, I don't like it." And then I go, "Oh God, no, I don't like it either." <laughs> I don't usually take much convincing. Um, so I think I owe him. I really owe him a lot in terms of that. Otherwise, all kinds of garbage you'd get on these tracks. We'll play another track, actually. I never thought I'd introduce a, a Dire Straits track that doesn't have, actually, very much guitar on it. I'm going to talk about your latest trick. See, now, but you see, now, for instance, an example of that would be that we had flugelhorn originally there and then replaced it, and then we had a uh, brass section in there and replaced that with a single saxophone. And uh, there's lots and lots of bits and pieces. I mean, that could have had guitar all over it. So it's weird, it's just eventually it's the mixture that strikes you as being right. There's a man there you know His feelings and brass he's shown But occasionally he'll tolerate saxophones From the uh, from the album Walk of Life, which to me is a real out and out pop song. This isn't it? To me, it's it's not so much pop. It's like a, almost like a rockabilly style of tune, which is again it's the same sort of music that I, I've come up playing and been playing for a long time. Nice to see, nice to hear you really cheerful there, because I think you got lumbered with that sort of moody uh, tag a bit, didn't you? 
Oh yeah, definitely. I think things like private investigations and uh, uh, Romeo and Juliet. You know, people sort of think, oh God, this is going. You know, it's a, it's a, it's, it's of. Uh, he's one of them, but uh, uh, it's not true, really. No, it's definitely not true. You're about to do this enormous tour then, but uh, do you ever hearken after the old days? I mean, playing in pubs and little tiny clubs and things like that. I mean, it's, a great, it's a great myth, I think, that everybody hearkens back to that time as being the most exciting and the most exhilarating. I wonder how you feel yourself. Well, it's, it's a double-edged thing, that. I think you'd be a liar if you said, you know, you didn't care about any of those times, because obviously we do. Um, and there's, there's, no matter what people say, uh, about great shows in big places and stuff like that. It's still nothing to me quite like a small room that's really jumping. And uh, we do try when we're on tour to play in small rooms now and again. We make fools of ourselves in clubs after shows sometimes and uh, borrow bands' equipment. Do you think that's how you'll end up? I mean, you know. Yeah, I think that that's definitely what it'll be. I'll be staggering off with a walking stick and a guitar, you know, down to the, the corner club. And I mean, that's, <laughs> that's really how I see it. I don't, because uh, that's what I am. I think that's what I do. It's just like other people paint pictures and, that's, and this is what I do. After releasing Brothers in Arms, the band set off on a huge world tour, which took them to 23 countries, 248 dates, plus performing at Live Aid on the 13th of July, 1985. Wembley with Mark Knopfler of Dire Straits. Uh, Mark, you have been playing, as I've told you before, within water balloon dropping distance of our commentary booth. Uh, was it at all a difficult or a trial to, to move your equipment and stuff over to the stadium? Well, we didn't have far to bring it. We just had to bring it across the car park. Uh, but uh, it, 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 there's just technical details. I mean, no sound check or anything like that, but it really doesn't matter because the feeling is so great. Just listen to that. And... Uh, I think the crowd have been fantastic. The band, we're all, we're all delighted to, to have just uh, been able to do our bit for uh, such a, a fantastic cause. And uh, speaking personally, I hope it's not the end of all this. Uh, I hope that a lot more can be done. Well, much has been said that pop musicians are now raising as much as, if not more, than some governments in making their donations to famine relief. Do you think this could be the start of something bigger? Well, I certainly hope so. Uh, on a massive scale, for instance, I was talking to an engineer friend of mine the other night about this. I don't see why there shouldn't be an official record. I mean, I know that the playing, you know, you're not necessarily going to get fantastic quality, uh, but I just think that uh, the, the, the bands would be only too happy to, uh, to uh, let the tracks go to a record. And I can't, for the, I mean, 
I am talking off the top of my head here, but I can't for the life of me understand why the bootleggers should be allowed to get away with all the money, which, knowing bootleggers, uh, that's exactly what they'll do. Uh, I think if we could get some kind of official record happening, that, that I, can't, I don't, don't see why the companies can't get, get that together. The Brothers in Arms World Tour sold over 2.5 million tickets, including 900,000 in Australia and New Zealand alone. And here's the band on the eve of their 248th and last show of the tour, which was in Sydney, talking about the tour. Well, welcome back, and after a very nervous intro, I'm now in the dressing rooms of Dire Straits, and uh, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Mark Knopfler. Mark, welcome to tonight. Who's the joker buddy. sitting next to you, incidentally? I don't know. I've seen him hanging around the Seville for some... Excuse mm. me? No. Ed, the manager of Dire Straits. Hello, Had to get in oh, first. That's who you, that's who yes, you are. Yes, hello. Nice yeah. to meet you at last. All right, now listen, back down to the serious side. How do you and the band feel? Oh, we're, we're such jokers. <laughs> <laughs> now, how do you feel that it's the sort of the last concert of this world tour? It's really come to an end. Uh, well, I think it's mixed feelings all around. You know, the the, the road crew have been coming in like uh, old retainers. You know, leaving for you know, they've been with you for a long time. Well, it's like it's it's very weird because I mean, everybody you're very conscious of the fact there's a lot of guys that have been putting all their talents and their abilities together to make right. something work for everybody, and uh, they've done a really great job for us, for the band. Well, no, I mean, they're as a doll. Well, no, they're not. But as I said, it's like it's, it's spanned 25 countries in the last year and 260 concerts. When you first put this tour together and thinking of doing a world tour, did you imagine it to be this big? No. And to go for no. so long? No. I think it was originally about six months. Right. And it just grew. I mean, like when you were t- uh, telling me just before you were coming out here in L.A., you said, I said, I've planned uh, six or seven concerts at the Entertainment yeah. Centre in mm-hmm. Sydney. It turned out to be 20. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was about seven in Melbourne. It turned out to be, what, 13? 13, yeah. uh, It just seemed to go on and on. Mm-hmm. I mean, did ever get to a stage, just even in this part of the Australasian tour in New Zealand and Australia, that it'd be another day and you'd think, my God, I've got to go and play again tonight. Did the band yourselves ever feel jaded stage? Yeah, I think if, if you're doing a long s- stretch in one place, um, like 20, nights here in Sydney mm. you know you get the feeling that you should have a clocking in machine you should just be coming after a while right. and you have to do certain things to try and break the monotony and um, we've managed to, to do that alright I think and I think the band's been playing <coughs> better all the time as well which is very surprising right. all around that the, the standards have, have been ke- uh, have been able to maintain standards uh, all the way through and find new things in the music all the time the other thing is that I'm very proud of the band and the crew for, for getting the whole thing sorted out is the fact that there's a lot of fans there that come in to see the band who aren't necessarily a rock and roll the fans that we'd be used to having just a, a seething mass of real rock and roll fans in there there's a lot of other people coming in that I mean, we, for want of a better word, you could kind of call them the tourists. Mm. But they're just curious. That that sort of, I'll go and have a look at this. I must see what all the fuss is about. And it's nice to turn them onto it, turn them around during the course of a night. Well, uh, also with the bands, I mean, a lot of bands sort of say, like, after have spending you know, so much time in a recording studio and then they have to go out on the road, that it becomes uh, a strain on the band because the members are seeing each other every day. I mean, has there ever been any sort of strain on this band? Well, we're very hot on the fact that your feet haven't got to smell on the bus and, uh, right. you know, that you keep your... Uh, <laughs> what do you make of faces? for yourself. For? No, no <laughs> we're very... Uh, 
it is kind of like a marriage, I guess, in a way. Mm. You've it's got funny, to, just before you came in, I, give I, was, and take, you know. I was saying that there hasn't been a single fight or even major disagreement between anybody within the crew or within the band. Right, now, I won't ask you this, I'll ask Ed. Normally the band don't like doing television, um, and now you're doing like an entire live performance. Mm -hmm. What motivated right, you to do that? Well, one of the reasons it's live, right. most television isn't live. And I think that, you know, that process of, you know, the pop TV show where you're miming is, is boring. But it's nice to be able to thank right. the people in Australia and New Zealand, New Zealand for, for the too, tour. Yeah. Well, listen, we've got 12,000 people out there ready to fire into, into action as soon as you walk out on stage. We've got millions of viewers in Australia and New Zealand um, ready to watch this, uh, a very important telecast, simulcast. Just one last question. It's a very important concert because some of this money uh, of tonight is going to a great cause. All of probably, it. Well, all of it is going to such a great cause. Um, whose idea was that? Collectively, the band? Um, it's, yes, I mean, we were, we were made aware when we came to Australia about the, the drug problem here and the fact that this, this campaign was about to start. And it's seen, I mean, Australia's given, and New Zealand, are giving a lot, a lot to us. Right. So it's nice to be able to give something back. Well, I, I, hope, hope, I hope the campaign That'll works. be explained throughout, throughout the telecast. Why don't you hold you up to all the boys. Uh, have a great night, and Mark, have a great Absolutely. night, and thank Thanks you very much for coming. Yeah. And for you? Molly, it's always been a thrill. Same here, mate. All right, cheers. We'll be back in a moment. <laughs> The band spent from February 7 to April 26 of 1986 in Australia and New Zealand, and they were so big, they even had a band versus crew cricket match televised on TV and commentated by Ian Chappell. How fucking Aussie. Um, this is really just a, uh, a response by the band to... Um, some some pretty unwholesome uh, Characters. <laughs> uh, bragging that's been going on on the part of our, our road crew. Um, and what we felt that, I mean, it got to such a stage, basically, we, it came to the point where we felt that we had to make some kind of honourable reply. So it was either dueling pistols or this? Pretty much. Um, you know, the, the, we feel that the, the time's come basically just to get things sorted out once and for all as far as these guys are concerned. Definitely fitter. The crew don't really do any work anymore, you know. They're, they're, basically, the, the gigs are all set up beforehand. They get humpers every time that they turn up to a place. So it's all set up for them. They're just basically knob twiddlers now. The band are, are fit and strong. You know, we go to the gym. We're windsurfers. We're uh, surfing. We're golfers. We're tennis players. a rather comfortable victory. Crew all out for 79. Guy Fletcher gets his first wicket. Peter Brewis is out without scoring. Gary Lewis remains one not out. So the band having made 135. Comfortable 56 run victory. Best bowlers for the band. Barry Murphy uh, getting three wickets. Skippy uh, picking up a couple. Chris White getting two. Paul Cummins one. And Guy Fletcher getting the last wicket. 
And probably the feature of that uh, second innings was the great fielding of the band. Some good catches taken, and that was perhaps the difference between the sides, the two sides, apart from the occasional umpiring decision. So after the tour, Dire Straits took 1987 off and Mark Knopfler did some film soundtrack work and some solo projects. And the band regrouped in 1988 for the Nelson Mandela 70th birthday at Wembley with Eric Clapton on guitar on the 11th of June. Then in September 88, Mark Knopfler announced that Dire Straits was over. In 1989, Mark Knopfler reunited with Steve Phillips from his early days and also with Dire Straits manager Ed Bicknell on drums and they formed the Notting Hillbillies, which was a record of a few songs written by the guys and some traditional tunes and one Mark Knopfler penned song, Your Own Sweet Way. There's nothing I can do, nothing I can say. You do what you want to, go your own sweet way. You'll go your own sweet, your own sweet way. You'll go your own sweet, your own sweet way. Now I can talk to you, see it. I can talk to you at night. When it comes to love, you won't take good advice. You'll go your own sweet. Here's bass player John Ilsley talking about what happened next. If I, I think if I remember rightly, I sort of resigned myself to the fact that we'd, we'd probably, you know, we'd, we'd probably done enough. Mm-hmm. And so Mark and I were having lunch one day, I think in uh, shortly after the Mandela concert. And I think he'd probably enjoyed getting the band back together again, to be honest. Um, he'd gone off, he'd done a, he'd gone off and done a few other things, uh, as is his, as was his wont in between each of the albums. They were like local heroes, Stevie Nicks and Stevie Dan and uh, Bob Dylan and, you know, goodness, you know, dropping a few names here. But, <laughs> um, you know, he, you know, he'd done a lot of work with other people. And I think he was, he wanted to change the way that he wrote. And in fact, that was starting to happen with on the, on the, on every street tour, which um, oh, on the album, sorry, the tour, the tour came later. But and so I was a bit surprised when we sat down and had lunch one day and he said, do you want to make another record? And I went, I'm free because, <laughs> <laughs> of course, he and I were the only two surviving original members by this point. Why do you think that you and uh, and John have managed to be the two that have stuck together when the band has sort of gone through various I'm not sure. stages? I don't know. What is it about you two? I don't know. We're just in love. Deeply. I guess. No, it's, it, uh, I just, I suppose we've got the rights. What it is, there's a certain will involved in the whole thing, as well as and everything else, as well as loving it. I think there's a certain will involved in keeping something going like that. Because everybody knows that bands can be a tremendous pain. I mean, I'm sure you do. <laughs> uh, 
and it re it requires a few different qualities, and I, I suppose John's got a lot of them. I've got some of them. There's gotta be a record of you someplace. You gotta be on somebody's books. So Dire Straits hit the studio and recorded their sixth and final album on Every Street, and it was released on the 9th of September, 1991. The album went on to sell over 15 million copies and was stupidly seen by some to be a failure after Brothers in Arms' massive success. The album went to number one in Australia, Austria, Holland, Germany, New Zealand, Norway, Portugal, Sweden, France, Switzerland, UK, but only made it to number 12 in America. The album had six singles, Calling Elvis, On Every Street, The Bug, You and Your Friend, Ticket to Heaven, and Heavy Fuel. We thank you, Mark. Let's get a break with the just-released single from uh, On Every Street. The single's called Heavy Fuel. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. Last time I was sober, man, I felt bad. Worst hangover that I ever had. It took six hamburgers and scotch all night. Nicotine for breakfast just to put me right. Cause if you if you want one cool, if you want one cool, you got to run on heavy, heavy fuel. Heavy, heavy fuel. Heavy, heavy fuel. And on August 23, 1991, the band started another world tour which consisted of 229 shows, 19 countries, 7.1 million tickets, and they finished up in Spain on the 9th of October, 1992. Absolutely. So you got back together, as you said, you, you released on every street and then you toured. It was probably even bigger, wasn't it, than the Brothers in Arms tour? Yeah, it was bigger and more exhausting, yeah. I think <laughs> I think, I think uh, getting towards the end of that was, I, I think we all realised that probably that was, that was enough. That was the end. Um, it was a good time to stop, and um, uh, that was a that, that was a big tour. That was a big tour, and I think it took us all a bit of time to get over all that. Actually, to be honest, I mean, it was it was it was exhausting both mentally, physically, and emotionally. Actually, at the end of the On Every Street tour, Mark Knopfler expressed his wish to give up touring on a big scale and took some time out of the music industry, and the band kind of faded away from there. In 2018, Dire Straits were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and it was a bit of a shit fight with the band and here's John Ilsley talking about the Hall of Fame. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is a rather peculiar organisation I've discovered. Um, it's, in America, it's an absolutely massive deal. Uh, you have to realise that. Uh, uh, whereas over here, it's, 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 it's very nice to be honoured and all the rest of it, but it's not regarded in su- such a high, high manner. Um, it got a bit complicated, to be perfectly honest, and I'm not going to go into the details too much, but um, Mark decided he didn't want to go, uh, and, and I, I completely respected that. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't really handle it very well politically, to be perfectly frank. It wasn't, it wasn't between Mark and myself where the problem was, let me make that very clear. Um, he just decided that he didn't want to get involved in all the political shenanigans, which was coming out of the of the rock and roll hall of fame committee and i said well look i'm i know this is difficult for you but i'm going to go and and guy wanted to go and then suddenly alan said he wanted to go so the three of us went to accept the award and um it was it was pretty strange 
it was pretty odd uh, dealing with them actually. But I won't go into the details because it's 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 it could take quite a while. <laughs> so Dire Straits were a recording band for 13 years. They released six studio albums and sold over 120 million albums and introduced one of the greatest guitarists, songwriters, and emotive singers ever in Mark Knopfler who has since released nine solo albums and a bunch of movie soundtrack recordings. And I hope that answers John's question, how good is Dire Straight? I would say very good. And I strongly doubt it, but who knows, they might do another tour one day, which will be probably interesting to see. Anyway, I hope you dig into some Dire Straits and long live Mark Knopfler. Thanks so much for listening. And as always, if you think I've missed anything in this free podcast that took me a few full days to put together, send me an email at... I can't die await to hear from you at a rock and roll rabbit hole dot log flog, and I'll get back to you as soon as I give a shit. Now, nah, but seriously, you can say hey on Instagram and Facebook, a rock and roll rabbit hole podcast, and you can check out all of the old episodes and some other stuff on the website, a rock and roll rabbit hole.com. The podcast is also on Twitter, but I don't go on there because it looks like people are pretty angry. But you can hit me up through the website, arockandrollrabbithole.com, and you can check out all the past episodes on there too. Please share, subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It's super helpful. And I'll see you next week with a semi-normal episode. Thanks again, guys. We'll see ya. 